Daniel 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward, and northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram And broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and it trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host would be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and hosts to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, it was, and it called Gabriel, Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the later end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place 
of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall rise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Heavenly Father, we pray that, Lord, you would give us grace this morning as we seek to understand this vision. And we ask, O oh, Father, that you would be our instructor and guide, that, Lord, you would meet, meet each one of us where we are, O oh, Father, and speak to us, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. A number of years ago, I was at a large Christian gathering in Pittsburgh. It was a men's gathering. And the keynote speaker at the gathering uh, was speaking to men, but more specifically, he was speaking to any man in the large group of men. I don't know how many thousands there were. There were thousands of people there. Uh, any, uh, any of the men whose marriage was on the rocks, that's, that's who he was targeting with his talk. And uh, his, his talk, unfortunately, had much more to do with emotional appeal than it did to biblical truth. And I remember thinking to myself, where is he going with this? There was a lot of videos being played, and there was a really hard tug at the emotion. It was a very emotional uh, message uh, not a lot of biblical content to it, but the whole thing kind of reached its climax when he invited any man who was having marital difficulties to come to the front of the auditorium and to hand that over to Jesus. So, of course, that's a great thing to do when we're having troubles, is to hand it over to Jesus. The only problem was the message was phrased in such a way that one could easily be under the impression that if we went to the front of the auditorium and we handed everything over to Jesus, then everything would turn out just the way we would like it to turn out. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, these men, these poor men, many of whom traveled a great distance to come to this thing. What if she's not there when they go home? Will they be done with Jesus? And that leads to the point that I want to I talk about this morning. What I want to address this morning is, as the people of God, how are we to handle bad news? I remember a seminary professor saying one time, he says, listen, fellas, you know, what, what do you do when you go home and your wife tells you she doesn't want to be married anymore? And then he said, you know that happens, don't you? 
as the people of God. How do we handle hard times? How do we handle the news when the biopsy doesn't go the way we think it should go or we would want it to go? (laughs) Every Sunday we pray for things and on our prayer list, there's lots of things there. We want them to go a certain way, but how are we to handle it if they don't go the way we want them to go? How do we bear under horrible news, in essence, is what I'm asking. And I think that uh, I know that the vision that we have here, this strange vision, if you've read this for the first time this morning, it's really strange, isn't it? This vision in Daniel 8. What could could a, a goat with a horn and a ram with a couple of horns have to do with bearing up bad news? I think in a few minutes we're going to see it has a lot to do with it. And really, I'll just go ahead and, and unveil it. Let me, just, let me just pull the curtain back, and we're going to see, really, there's four points that I want to make this morning. The first one is the future is in God's hands. When we study this passage, we're going to see that the future is in God's hands. We're going to see that. And secondly, we're going to see that the future involves tough times ahead for the people of God. And thirdly, we're going to see that because the future is in God's hands, history is God's story. How many have heard that before, that history is God's story? In fact, sometimes you, you, know, you can take history and you can kind of separate it, His story. You've probably all seen those things. And fourthly, the God who controls history is also the God who controls our story. Our story. Let's take these one by one. Let's start with the first. The future's in God's hands. Let's look at this vision. And may God give us grace to us as we do. May the Holy Spirit enlighten us as we look at this. If you turn back to verse 1 in Daniel 8, we see it's the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. The last vision we studied in Daniel 7 was the first year. So two years have elapsed between uh, the vision in Daniel 7 and the vision in Daniel 8. Daniel is still under the reign of Belshazzar. He's still under the reign of king of Babylon, and in his vision, Daniel sees a ram with two horns. Uh, Verse 3, one horn was higher than the other horn. Uh, The higher horn had come up shortly after the lower one. Verse 4 tells us that the ram was unstoppable. No one could subdue it. It did as it's pleased. That is until a second creature appears, right? In verse 5, Daniel saw a male goat coming across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And we would say, that goat's flying, wouldn't we? Uh, it's, a, it's an imagery of speed. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It's, it's meant to be seen. Uh, th- this creature is flying. It's, it's, it's moving very rapidly. Uh, the goat had a single horn between its eyes. And the goat powerfully charges against the ram, resulting in this this powerful clash, if you will. You might even think of on the animal planet, maybe, whenever they show those scenes where uh, those, uh, those creatures run and, and lock horns. You know, you can hear that powerful slam. That's the imagery. That's what we're supposed to get here. And it results uh, in the uh, ram being defeated. And now the goat has dominion. And we're told that he becomes very great. And when he becomes strong... We're told that this great horn was broken and four horns took its place. If you look down to verse 9, out of one of the horns, 
came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the glorious land. You see that? Toward the glorious land. That's the holy land. That's towards the land of Israel. Now, before we go any further, let's sort this out, okay? Uh, look down with me, really beginning with verse 15. The, 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 the wonderful thing about Daniel 8 is we're given a divine interpretation of Daniel 8. So we're not left guessing as to what all this stuff means. If we go down to verse 15 and following, we see that Daniel's trying to understand this and that the archangel Gabriel is giving the task of explaining it to him. If you look down with me to verse 19, Gabriel says to Daniel, he says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, this whole idea of the appointed time of the end, some, uh, some uh, teach that what's in view here is the return of Christ, the end of all history, if you will, uh, the end of this age. Uh, I, I, I don't think that's the best, uh, most probable way to take this. I think that what this is referring to is the end of the activity of this little horn. I think that'll become clear as we, as we go. In verse 20, Gabriel identifies the ram as the kings of Media and Persia. You see that? And then in the next verse, the goat is identified as Greece. And the great horn between its eyes is the first king, uh, which you remember from high school uh, history, the first king was Alexander the Great. You remember those stories? Hopefully, uh, uh, he was that guy that at, at 21 years of age became general of, of the army of Greece. And by the time he was 26 years old, he had conquered pretty much the known world. You can kind of see why the, the goat's moving. It's moving very rapidly, not even touching the ground. I mean, that was astounding military success that Alexander the Great enjoyed, wasn't it? But then he dies suddenly at the age of 33. You remember that? And if you remember the rest of the story, four of Alexander the Great's generals, they rise up and each has his respective kingdom in the empire that Alexander the Great uh, had conquered. And those are the four horns. Alexander the Great is the first horn that's broken off. The four horns that come after him are those four generals. So uh, Gabriel continues, uh, you see, as for the horn that was broken, verse 22, in place of which four others arose, uh, four kingdoms shall rise from his nation, but not with his power. What Gabriel's talking about are these four generals, uh, none of which had the power, they, none of us had the military genius uh, that Alexander the Great had. But nevertheless, they become four great kingdoms. Now, um, out of one of those kingdoms comes a, a little horn, if you will. And uh, this little horn is known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, we, we should stop here just for a second. Um, before we go any further, let's, let's think about this for a moment. Whenever we're studying a passage of Scripture... There's one question that we should be asking about that passage of Scripture is what role is this passage of Scripture playing in the overall message of the book? We could start by saying what role is this passage of Scripture playing at the beginning of the book or in the particular chapter it's in 
or maybe in the first half of the book, uh, we ask these questions. Now, if we ask this question of Daniel 8, what do we come up with? We've seen now, uh, we're now in the eighth uh, chapter of this book, and you've noticed that the message in every chapter kind of seems to be the same. It's that against all appearances, God is in control. Have you noticed that? But each chapter, each story, each vision adds shading to that. It takes that message and applies it at a different angle, if you will. Now, what is unique about Daniel 8? What's unique about Daniel 8 are the specifics. You know, in the, in the, in the earlier visions, uh, if we go back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a dream, he can't figure it out. Daniel figures it out for him. You know, it's this big statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron. What's this? There's only one specific given. Daniel says, King, uh, the head of gold is you. Now, of course, we have a couple of views that it seems logical that the next, the next kingdom, each, the statue stands for four kingdoms. But we're not given specifics about the four kingdoms, are we? They're not identified is what I'm trying to say. And then last week when we were studying Daniel 7, what do we make of a lion with wings? What do we make of a bear with uh, ribs in its mouth? What do we make of a leopard with wings? What do we make of this beast that's indescribable? Well, there's a lot of things we can make, but it lacks specifics, doesn't it? When the angel gives the interpretation, he doesn't name specifics. But here in Daniel 8, what does Gabriel say? The ram you saw. It's media Persia. The goat. That's Greece. And the horn. The horn. That's the first king. We know the first king was Alexander the Great. It gets broke, four kings come after it. We know the names of these kings. And because this story is being told from the vantage point of the people of God, we know that the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. There's very little disagreement about that. Now, what is the message of all of this? The message of all of this is that these things are being told to Daniel three centuries before they take place. God is the God of the future. He holds the future in His hand. Now, the next thing that we see here is that there's bad news ahead for the people of God. If we continue in the vision here, uh, if, we, if we think it through here, we might ask, okay, who's the leading figure, the leading human figure? We know who the leading figure of the passage is. Of course, it's God. But the leading human figure in the passage, who is that leading human figure? Well, it's not the kings of Media Persia. They're just kind of mentioned in passing, aren't they? It's not the king of Greece. Alexander the Great is great. As a, if we were writing a history book, we'd probably spill a lot of ink on Alexander the Great and his remarkable achievements, but he's mentioned in passing. No, it's, it's not the four generals either that established four kingdoms after Alexander the Great is, is gone. The central human figure is Antiochus, the little horn. 
And if you look with me to verses 9 through 12, let's, this is probably the most dense part of the vision. In verse 9, we're told that out of one of them, that is the four horns, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the holy land, if you will, the glorious land, the promised land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Okay, what's up with this? What does all that mean? The text is a little difficult here, but we can get through it with the help of the Holy Spirit. If you back up to verse 9, out of one of them, that is the four horns, right? A little horn comes up. It grows exceedingly great towards the Holy Land. Do you see that? In other words, this little horn grows up, and this little horn, who is Antiochus Epiphanes, has dominion over the Holy Land, over the people of God. Verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven. That is a heavenly army, if you will. The host of heaven. Host is usually an army or a large body of angels. To the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Here's something very spectacular is happening. The curtain, if you will, is being pulled back. The veil is being pulled back. And we're actually seeing the heavenly dimension of what's going on here. If we look at verse 11, it becomes even more astounding. It, that is the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, became great, even as great as the Prince of Hosts. Who is the Prince of Hosts? Some say the Prince of Hosts is the high priest. I don't think that that's most accurate. I take this, the line of Calvin and many others to say that the Prince of Hosts is God Himself. And the regular bar, burnt offering was taken away from Him. In other words, the little horn has reached up and He has attacked the very army of God. He has reached up in this vision and He's even assaulting God Himself. And the amazing thing is He's prospering at it. Now, as we've already said, the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes reigned from 175 to 164 B.C. And he prospered through military force. He was a vicious tyrant. who He unified his kingdom the same way Alexander the Great unified his by spreading Greek culture everywhere. Which, interestingly enough, I mean, if I just might add this in passing on the side, this is fantastic. I mean, God wanted to get a common language over the known world, and He uses Alexander the Great to do it. He took Greek culture all over the world. What is your New Testament originally written in, by the way? It's in Greek. And it's not in classic Greek. It's not in the academic Greek. It's in the regular common Greek that the common people would have spoken and understood. 
So God was preparing, wasn't he? He's preparing. But back to this, Antiochus, he is trying to unify his kingdom by pushing Greek culture on his subjects. And this made for a hostile situation for the Jews. He comes in, he bans circumcision. He stops the sacrifices that are going on in the temple. The morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, that stops. He goes into the temple. He sacrifices a pig on its altar in order to defile the altar. And then he brings some kind of object. I'm not sure we know what it is, but it's some kind of sacred object that was sacred to the Greek god Zeus. And he places it in the Holy of Holies. In essence, defiling the whole thing. He burned copies of Scripture and he executed those who were caught with them. And this is the fulfillment of Gabriel's words. Look with me to verses 23 through 25. Now Gabriel is speaking to Daniel. He's given the interpretation of the vision. And he says, A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall rise. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, by the way, was, was really, uh, of all the things he was, he was a very cunning politician. And I think that's what Gabriel is referring to there in verse 23. Verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes shall be broken, but by no human hand. This is real bad news for the people of God. We're told at the end of the vision that Daniel's reaction to this is he becomes sick. Of course he becomes sick. It's not going to affect him personally so much, but it's, it's an amazing testimony to Daniel's character that he, he, he receives it as if he's going to go through it personally. Because the people of God are going to go through it. It's horrible news of, of all awful persecution that's going to take place. Now, let's recap where we've been. We see that the future's in God's hands. God's giving us a future here. He's, he's telling Daniel what's going to happen in the future. And we see that the future holds real bad news, don't we? The people of God are in for tough times. So we ask ourselves, okay, where's the comfort? Rick, you said there's comfort in this. This don't sound very comfortable. Well, here's where the comfort is. Daniel is given a very specific and detailed vision of the future. We shouldn't think of it like as if uh, God hands Daniel a, a history book out of the future and gives it to him. It wouldn't be like somebody, uh, like God giving us a history book from the year 2615, and then we have this history book. It's not quite like that. Remember, it's an apocalyptic vision. But nevertheless, what is God doing here? He foretells the events of world history from the vantage point of the people of God with amazing detail. So amazing that a lot of scholars say, you know what, this had to have been written, it had to have been written in around after 175 or 164 BC. There's no way this could have been written in the 5th century. They say that because they can't imagine that God could give this kind of detail, that Daniel could have given this kind of detail. Uh, we don't say that. The future's in God's hands. He knows what's going to happen in the future. Now, one of the scariest things about this world, one of the scariest things about this world is that without the eye of faith, without Christ in your life, what does it look like 
I mean, you see all these things happening. You know, I can side with the person who looks at this world, the person outside of Christ who looks at this world and says, you know, it's, we're just like a bunch of ants running around on a crowded sidewalk waiting to get stepped on. And who's it going to be today? Is it going to be me or is it going to be you or is it going to be both of us? Whoa, Ernie just about got it. But just by chance, he happened to be in a low portion of the cement as that shoe went over him. That was close. Is it going to be me today? Is it going to be you? Or is it going to be somebody we love? See, I can understand why people say that. If Christ is not in the picture, <laughs> what's the purpose? What's the meaning? One ant today, one ant tomorrow. Me today, you tomorrow. But Christ changes all of that. How does Christ change all of that? That's because He's opened up a way. He's opened up our eyes. He's opened up our ears. And with Daniel, we see that we're nothing like ants walking on the sidewalk. With Daniel, we see that God is the God of the future, which means God is the God of history. Today's future is tomorrow's history, right? Jesus teaches the same thing when he says there are not two sparrows sold for a penny. You know that sting. You know, two little birds, are they not sold for a penny? In the economy of the day in which Jesus was speaking, you could buy two birds for a penny. But then he says, hey, not one of them falls apart from the will of your Father. God is in control. Even in the demise of a sparrow. And Jesus goes on to say, well, how about you? Aren't you worth much more than a penny? Aren't you worth much more than a couple of sparrows? No, no, Daniel says. Daniel is showing us that God is not off in the distance as things happen by chance. No, 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 God is in control. And we've seen this many times as we've studied Daniel, haven't we? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. What's God doing? He's waking Nebuchadnezzar up. You think you're great. Yeah, you're the head of gold. I'll give you your grape, but I'm the one that sets you up. There's the kingdoms that are coming after you, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the one that sets you up. Nebuchadnezzar says, no, look at this great Babylon that I have made. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, here's your lesson. I set you up, now I'm going to remove you. And I'm going to put you out in a field like a beast. And you're going to be out there for a period of time known only to me. But then I'm going to do something else amazing. I'm going to take you out of that field and I'm going to put you back in that throne and I'm going to make you greater than you was the first time. And that's exactly what God does, isn't it? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they, refu they refused to bow down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar made. They said, no, if you're going to throw me in the furnace, throw me in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar's furiated. He, he orders the furnace to be made as hot as the technology of the day would, would allow it or afford it. And they're thrown into the flames. They're so hot that the attendants that escort them to the furnace are destroyed by the heat. And Daniel, God works sovereignly in the flames, doesn't he? What about the lion's den? Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, and God shows his sovereignty by shutting the mouths of the lions. How about here? 
God's showing He's in control of the future, isn't He? He's showing that He's in control of the future. And that leads to the next point here. The God who controls history also controls our story. Let me flesh this out. History is God's story because the future is in God's hands. And most of our anxiety comes because we make a prediction about the future. You know, if you're counseling someone who has a lot of anxiety, one of the things you want to share with them is say, listen, you're making a lot of predictions. You're predicting that everything's going bad. But what's the problem? I mean, um, (laughs) if there's no God in the picture then somebody's got to get in control because if there's no God in the picture, then no one's in control. And if no one's in control, I better get in control. But the problem is I'm trying to control things I can't control. That's anxiety. And it should be no surprise to us that as our culture goes further and further away in godlessness, that it's going to become increasingly anxious. That people are surprised by that is amazing. If nobody's in control, then I better get in control. And then the problem is when you try to get in control, you suddenly realize you're trying to control things you can't control. And your mind begins racing on all of these these predictions that this is going to go bad and this is going to go bad, but Daniel, Daniel is showing there's a God. He's showing us that there's a little, he's showing us that there's a God that's in control of the future. And he's showing us that there's bad news in the future. Notice that he doesn't withhold that. Popular preachers today, they want you to believe that if you just hand it over to Jesus, everything's going to turn out the way you want it to turn out. That's utter nonsense. That's unbiblical. It might not turn out. In fact, what we should be telling everybody is, listen, as you hand your life over to Jesus, guess what? Your battle's now beginning. I always tell new converts, I said, listen, I want you to understand something. I'm not talking about if this happens. I'm talking about when this happens because it'll certainly happen. Your new faith that's been given to you has been given to you to be tested. You're going to be tested. There is trouble ahead. And my concern this morning is that we be prepared for the trouble ahead. And that is one of the burdens of Daniel 8, isn't it? Why is God revealing this? He's revealing this to His church because there is trouble ahead. There is an Antichrist figure named Antiochus Epiphanes who we'll call the little horn. And he is going to come in and he is going to ravish the people of God. He's going to stop the sacrifices. He's going to desecrate the temple. And then the people of God, and we have to remember under that administration, under the old covenant economy, what did the temple stand for? That was the place where we went to meet with God. And when that gets desecrated, we have to ask the question, Where did God go? He's gone. And that sounds hauntingly familiar as to where we are right now, doesn't it? To our culture, where did God go? He's missing. And the vision says, no, he's not. Look with me to uh, verses 13 through 14. Daniel hears a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering 
the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. I think you're starting to understand that language now, aren't you? How long is this little horn going to be ravishing everything? Is basically what they're saying. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Daniel was allowed to hear a conversation about this. And the question comes up, how long? How long? And the answer that is given is 2,300 evenings and mornings. I don't know the meaning, exact meaning of that. I don't know if 2,300 evening and mornings is 2,300 days, taking the meaning from, say, Genesis 1, and, and there was evening and morning the first day, and there was evening and morning the second day, and there was evening. That's a possibility. It's 2,300 days. Others say, you know, it's the sacrifices. You know, you have the, the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. So uh, if that's the case, then we would divide two into 2,300, and we'd get 1,150 days. I don't know if it's... 2,300 days, if it's 1,150 days. Scholars try to take the 2,300 days and line it up with the events, and there's, there's problems with the chronology. There's problems with all this. I, I don't know the exact meaning of this, and I think that's the point. I don't think we're supposed to know the exact, the exact meaning of this. But here's the point. Here's what I do know. I do know that it's not going to go on forever. When it looks like God is gone, we need to remember something. He has not gone anywhere. This ravaging of the temple is not the way things are going to be from now on. There's a specific period of time that this is going to take place and then God's going to put a stop to it and the people of God are going to be restored. And that is so important for us to get hold of. I don't know. One of the things that really scares me as a pastor is I don't know what the future holds for any one person in this congregation. I don't know what's going to happen in your life. I don't know what's going to happen in my life. But I know that we're going to go through hard times. Aren't we? Eventually. And some of you are going through them now. But here's what I do know. It's only for 2,300 mornings and evenings. Now don't ask me what the duration of that time period is, because I don't know. I just explained to you, I don't know. We're not supposed to know. But what's important here is that we know it's temporary if you're in Christ. God restored that temple. That temple was restored. And later, a short time later, the king of all kings comes. And what does the king of all kings do? He does the unthinkable. He takes the sin of his people on a cross. What king does that? Kings don't do that. Kings make us serve them. He comes and serves us, goes on a cross and dies. Jesus teaches all of this when he says, famously says, listen, in this world you're going to have troubles. You know the verse I'm talking about? In this world you're all going to have troubles. But then he says, listen, fear not. I've overcome the world. Little Madison right now has got troubles, doesn't she? She's got troubles. What do we say to people who have troubles? We say that if you're in Christ Jesus, they're temporary. Don't diminish them. Don't diminish them. 
Don't diminish them. Say, ah, it'll be all right. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Some of these problems are so significant. Don't diminish them. They're significant problems. But if you're in Christ Jesus, they're temporary problems. So you see, the gospel is everything, isn't it, when we're going through hard times? Where have we been? Future's in God's hands. There's bad news ahead. The history is God's story. But the God who controls history also controls our story. Our lives are not running out of control. God has control of them, amen? Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, we so thank you for this vision that's so difficult to understand, but once we begin to see it, Father, it becomes so easy to see. Well, Father, you give us a snapshot of, the, of what would have been Daniel's future, what is our past, and you do it with stunning accuracy, clearly revealing that, Father, you're in control of the, of the future. And unlike so many, well, in many cases, well-intended messages today, you make it very clear there's tough times ahead for the people of God. But you remind us that history is your story. And because the future is in your hands, the hi history is in your hands. And because of all of these events being in your hands, Father, we can take comfort this morning in knowing that our story is in your hands. Oh, Father, we rest in that. We do not know what's ahead. We do not know how the, the items on our prayer list are going to turn out. But we know that our story is in your hands, and that comforts us. In Jesus' name, amen.